Where do images come from? Where do they come from? Your images, your images. The poet is always asking that. Where do my images come from? I wonder. From the sky. From the sky. And yesterday, when I was in the river, splashing my back legs. Eight degrees, they say. Eight degrees, the river, yesterday. I looked up. I looked up, I looked up at the sky, and there she was, my image. The white egret. The white egret. And I followed her, I followed her with my eyes across the sky, dipping and rising and falling and winging her way towards the weir wall where she landed. My image. My image. Where she landed. On the weir wall, where down below the fish gather. Dark bodies of water. Dark bodies of water, and I wondered, as I splashed my back legs and made my way towards the weir wall and my image, whether she would fly over, fall over through the flow, and I would lose her in the current and the rush. The rush. The rush. The rush. A reading life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. So I've been thinking a lot about voice and how we sound to ourselves as writers and how we generate voice. My students are always asking me this. How do you create a voice? How do you have such a strong voice? Where does she come from? How do you make your voice? Well, it starts by listening, I'd say. Listening to the sounds of others, listening to the sounds of the world around you. The chirruping of birds. The quacking of the ducks. The racing by of cars over the bridge. All the sounds of the isle, Caliban says in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And it also comes from the sound of my own breathing. The 
reverberations of my body life. I think of my body as a sort of repository of sound effects. And then also from the rhythms of music. And I've been listening to rhythmic music all week. I've been listening to the sound of guitar strings plucking because it reminds me of the work I do with my own fingers as a typist and as a writer and as somebody with a great deal of nervous energy running its course. string I suppose that brings me back to my own process of making and holding holding words to account and I told my student this week that I write through my ear first of all everything begins with the ear the auditory imagination what I hear what I take in through my ear what it is I don't hear through the silence. We're all led by a certain sense first and foremost and for me it's always been my ears. That's where my voice comes from. And I think of ears in Shakespeare. For some reason now I think of the poisoning of Claudius who replaces Hamlet's father in that famous play. He is poisoned through his ears, isn't he? Which must be a terrible end. Not to be able to hear the final notes spoken or said and it is said that we lose our hearing last when we die. We still hear the human voice. We still hear sound. And so when I write, what I'm looking for is cadence. And cadence is movement through sound. The ups and the downs. The flow. The rhythms of sound on the air. And when you write, you have to read your work out loud. You have to hear it. And you have to hear underneath it the rhythms that might be submerged. And so I could never write unless first I had trained myself to listen and to hear. And so when I start to write, I find a small space, a sound box. I often sit at the back of my boat, either in the engine room or here on my bed with my back pressed against my wardrobe. 
and I'm surrounded by creamy white walls and wooden panelling and then my portholes and it is a kind of incubation. I'm in my incubator and I am listening to the sound of the water outside and I am listening to the sound of the birds and I begin to speak out loud to myself and I begin to play quite often music until I catch the rhythm of somebody else's cadence somebody else's feeling life through music and often I read out loud to myself I read out poems, ballads, songs, hymns passages where I hear a voice emerging strongly 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 because sound and rhythm and cadence suggest another body another person another life lived to which I want wish to attach myself so I can catch some of their strength and their movement and their feeling and their knowing and their understanding of the world so let me read to you now a passage from George Orwell coming up for air because I want you to hear the strength of a crisp loud very well formed voice Idea really came to me the day I got my new false teeth. Now how do I hear that voice? This is the speaker narrator protagonist of George Orwell's Coming Up for Air. How do I hear him? The idea really came to me the day I got my new false teeth. I remember the morning well. At about a quarter to eight, I'd nipped out of bed and got into the bathroom just in time to shut the kids out. It was a beastly January morning, with a dirty, yellowish-grey sky. Down below, out of the little square of bathroom window, I could see the ten yards by five of grass, with a pivot hedge around it, and a bare patch in the middle that we call the back garden. There's the same back garden, some privets, and same grass behind every house in Ellesmere Road. Only difference. Where there are no kids, there's no bear patch in the middle. I was trying to shave with a bluntish razor blade while the water ran into the bath. My face looked back at me out of the mirror, and underneath, in a tumbler of water on the little shelf over the wash basin, the wash basin, I say, the teeth that belonged in the face. That was me speaking to the I say, and so you see I'm trying to interject myself as a writer into the voice of George Orwell's narrator. Narrator, narrator. The teeth that belonged in the face. It was the temporary set that Warner, my dentist, had given me to wear while the new ones were being made. 
I haven't had such a bad face, really. I haven't such a bad face, really, do I? And there I am again, iterating, iterating, iterating my own presence within the text because I want to get in, me, the writer, this separate I. It's one of those bricky red faces that go with butter-coloured hair and pale blue eyes. I've never gone grey or bald, thank God, and when I've got my teeth in, I probably don't look my age. Which is 45. 45. 45 and bald. And male. A man staring at himself in the morning in the bathroom mirror, considering his face. Considering his house. Considering his privet hedge and his back garden and the state of affairs on Ellesmere Road in suburban England. And I can relate, I can relate me, the writer, the narrator, to that patch of grass in the back garden what we call the back garden. There's the same back garden, some privets and same grass behind every house in Ellesmere Road. Only difference, where there are no kids, there's no bear patch in the middle. So you see, I'm recalling my own experience and my own bear patch of grass in the middle of that back garden, that back garden, back garden, why did I say Why do I hear a dog in the middle of back garden, the back garden? Why do I hear a bark? And so you see, there are words coming in. There are words coming into that bare patch of grass in the back garden. There's a bark of a dog. And perhaps that's because there was often a stray dog at the back of our garden, behind the black, black gate and the latch, of which I have spoken many times that passageway, that twitten, as we call it in Sussex, that twitten, as we call it in Sussex, that twitten, as we call it in Sussex. And so you see, I am trying to find my rhythm, my voice, my cadence, and I am listening for the words that slip underneath the gate, the bark of the dog that came in through back. Because under one word, is always another. Under one image is always a second and then a third. And so back gate and back garden leads to the bark of a dog, leads me out through the gate into the twitten to the old chestnut tree. And these are my primal scenes. This is the myth of my childhood. And this is the geography that I iterate over and over again, almost as a way of coming into my sense of self historically. And I am always telling my students, but have you considered history? Where is your character in time and space? Where is she or he historically? Who are they in the small, gaps in between the grand narratives we call history. Where do they sit? Where do they sit? What small gaps and spaces hold them? Because all these things must be considered if you are trying to develop a real 
with a real voice. And notice how George Orwell starts up his character in a small space, in a bathroom, through the frame of the bathroom mirror. Through, I say through, and I'm often thinking about through spaces and through rooms and passing through my porthole window to the scene outside because we need to pass through the sounds of words and images to get to where we wish to travel. Over the gate, under the gate, over the back wall, the red brick wall, which I imagined was something like a pony or a horse I could sit on. And I listened to the sound of other people's voices calling out across their garden wall, Mr and Mrs Sturgis on one side and the Greens on the other. Family is very different from ours, but I can still hear their voices even now. I can still hear the register, the tone, the cadence, and behind that the mood, the mood of the place. And mood is always historic, feeling within time and space. What you felt then is not exactly what you feel now, and that is what you need to understand when you're starting to write up your character in voice and voice produces a kind of place and a kind of space and so you see there is George Orwell's narrator his middle-aged man of 45 years old who's trying to shave with a bluntish razor blade while the water runs into his bath and his face is looking back at him out of the mirror and underneath his gaze his mirror he sees a tumbler of water on the little shelf over the wash basin and inside that little tumbler of water he sees the teeth that belonged in the face detail upon detail upon detail layered as the character considers the state of his own face as a way of considering the state of himself and his life and so you see what George Orwell what George Orwell and I let the O travel around my mouth until it forms a hard shape which I can see and feel because words are often running away from me these days George Orwell what he gives us is a set of small things laid out in order within a confined space. Firstly, the bathroom. Secondly, the bath. Thirdly, the bathroom window. Fourthly, the tumbler of water. And so those are the coordinates of his space and they are the coordinates of his character, which he is building up slowly so that we, as reader, feel ushered into that space such that we can also occupy it and we can see this balding aging man of 45 staring at his own face visage 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 face and i have been speaking a lot of faces this week with my students who are trying to write up their characters 
and I say to them, spend a lot of time looking at your character's face. Draw them, draw them, the eyes, the shadows, the lines, where the hair falls, how they flick their hair, how they touch their face, because we all do that far more than we realize. We are always making contact with our face because it is, of course, the place of our most fundamental identity. The face, the face in the bathroom mirror. The face in the bathroom mirror. Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you touch it? Can you hear it speak? Where do images come from, I wonder? They come from the sky. Up above, look, up above, there she is, a white egret flying. I saw her yesterday as I was splashing my back legs in the river. The cold water enfolding me, I looked up and there she was, my image, the white egret in the sky. do images come from I wonder and where do they go they come and they go and you want to follow them the poet always wants to follow her images and she worries she worries that they they will disappear over the weir wall down where the fish gather dark bodies of water where she cannot go she sees the white bird. There he is, there she is, the white bird above her as she tries to keep up with the flow. Where do images come from, I wonder, from all around? Look up, look up, when was the last time you looked up? To the cloud. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life.